Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good to see you today. My name is Josh, if you don't know me, and uh, one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Really glad that you're with us today, too. Uh, You know, maybe you've heard some of the jokes that start out, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. For example, uh, like the husband who says to his wife, hey, I drove your car, your brand new car to work yesterday, and I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. The good news is the airbags worked perfectly. (laughs) Or uh, maybe then her reply to him, uh, she says, well, I have good news and bad news too. Well, what's the bad news? He asks, and she said, well, the washing machine is broke. Okay, well, what's the good news? Well, the dogs are very clean. That's the good news. Or uh, maybe like the painter who goes into the art gallery to pick up his commission check And he asked the gallery owner, hey, how are my paintings selling these days? And the gallery owner replies, well, there's some good news and there's some bad news. A man came in the other day and he asked me, he said, you know, hey, is this guy a painter whose work would become more valuable after he dies? When I told him that, yeah, I thought thought it was. Uh, He bought everything that you've painted in the gallery. He said, wow, that's amazing. So what's the bad news? He goes, well, I'm pretty sure that guy was your doctor. And then uh, how about my own bad news? Uh, I spilled my coffee this morning all over my keyboard. But the good news is it's all under control. (laughs) I had to give you a groaner too, right? Like the control key. Well, hey, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth really kind of follows that same pattern. He starts off with good news and then he gives them some bad news. We're in a series through the New Testament book of Acts, and each time that Paul uh, goes to a city that uh, many of the cities where he plants churches, he ends up writing a letter to them afterwards, like a couple years later. So we just wrapped up his time in Corinth last Sunday, and so now we're going to look at a couple of the letters these next two weeks that he writes back to that church. And so uh, if you got your Bible, you can uh, turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, you can open up there. And Paul starts his letter with some good news. In fact, he starts it just with a greeting like he would write to anybody else. You know, you and I, we would write a letter to somebody. We'd say, dear so-and-so, right? Well, in ancient times, you actually started with your own name and then who you're writing to. So Paul says, Paul, uh, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, you'd give a little description of yourself, and our brother Sosthenes, By the way, if you were here with us last Sunday, do you remember Sosthenes? He showed up at the very end of the passage last week. He was a ruler in the synagogue who ended up uh, getting 
beaten because of his faith after they uh, couldn't get Paul. Uh, evidently, he travels with Paul then and uh, uh, works with him, and he ends up becoming uh, kind of the scribe that oftentimes writes a lot of Paul's letters for him, uh, as Paul would dictate him. So he says, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he keeps going. He gives some good news. He goes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, there you go. There's the good news Paul writes to him. Uh, to the church in Corinth. He, he affirms the great grace of the gospel. He says how they had been enriched in every way spiritually, how God had given them every spiritual gift in his grace, how Jesus was going to return soon, how God would sustain them and give them power to be blameless in the end, and how God was faithful. And that's the good news. But the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter, is actually uh, 16 chapters long. And the rest of chapter one and the rest of those other 15 chapters are the bad news. It's Paul dealing with the bad news with them. From here on out, Paul addresses all the bad news in Corinth. And so I thought just really briefly here, even as we start, I just wanna give you a flyby uh, of, of everything he writes about, all this bad news. <clears throat> because there's plenty. Uh, first, the first four chapters or so are just him talking uh, about divisions among them, and he, he appeals to them in a really strong way to have unity of heart and of mind in Christ. And then in chapter five, he condemns illicit immorality. In, in, in particular, a specific case where a man was sleeping with his father's wife. In chapter six, Christians are suing each other instead of going to one another first with their disagreements. And then later in chapter six, there's more sexual immorality. And then in chapter seven, uh, Paul starts answering uh, some questions evidently that were sent to him. Uh, he goes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he goes on and starts addressing questions, the second part of this letter. And he softens a little bit as he starts to teach about marriage and about single life and what that looks like. Uh, he talks about the relationship between our conscience and our freedom and what that means for how we live, that we don't live in a way that just totally ignores other people's consciences. But even though we have freedom, we need to honor people. He talks in chapter 11 about order in a worship service and who, who leaders are in the church. And he talks about spiritual gifts and serving in chapters 12 through 14. And finally, he talks about the reality and power of the resurrection in chapter 15. Now, each of these chapters, each of these teachings, even though Paul's tone softens a bit, 
they all bring with them as well the implication of a problem. Evidently, marriages were in trouble in Corinth, in the church. Uh, Strong and weak Christians were in conflict with one another. Worship and communion and spiritual gifts were being abused. Uh, They were getting drunk on the communion wine. All kinds of crazy things happening. And wrong doctrine was being introduced. So Paul, in chapter 15, towards the end of his letter, he writes this. He says, so don't be deceived, friends. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And don't go on sinning. For, for some, some of you have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. That some of you, you're living like the gospel had no effect in your life. You're just doing whatever you want, whenever you want. And there's no difference between you and somebody who doesn't know God. And I say this to your shame, he says. I, I like how the uh, NIV puts it. It says, uh, Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. I really like this, verse 34. So come back to your senses. Stop sinning. If you've trusted Christ, he saved you from these things. Come back to your senses. When Paul writes to Timothy later, he talks about that, that, uh, you know, as you preach the gospel, that that maybe God would bring them back to their senses and they'd, they'd repent and turn to Christ. Isn't it true that sometimes we get caught in sin and we do things and it's like, at the end of it, you're going, what am I thinking? How did I get here? Why am I doing this? Paul says, come back to your senses, repent, return. And uh, wake up from your drunken stupor. And all throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to them about the church's sanity. About the church's sanity. So that's where we're gonna go today. And... Um, we're gonna look at that, at the church's sanity. And you'll notice I capitalized church, thinking like uh, the whole church, not just the church in Corinth, but the church as a whole. Paul addresses that, but to really understand it, we've, we've gotta look at the specific church Paul writes to in this case, which is the church in Corinth. So uh, looking at their context, I thought it'd be helpful for us to do a, just a quick dive into life in Corinth. And I'm curious as we look at it, if you're not gonna see some things about Corinth that are also really similar to things in our culture in the West. See, when Paul came to Corinth, uh, he found a city that was enjoying an incredible economic growth. Along with Rome and Alexandria, and uh, Corinth was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. Its prominence and its wealth were really derived uh, because of the, the immense amount of shipping and commerce that passed through Corinth. See, Corinth uh, is right here in Greece. Uh, By the way, this is modern-day Turkey. There's Italy with Rome. And Corinth is right down here in Greece. Let me zoom in a bit. And it was situated on a a four-mile-wide isthmus. Do you remember that word from geography class when you were a kid? An isthmus is a piece of land that connects two larger pieces of land through a body of water. And uh, so it's like a peninsula, but it connects at both ends. Right? That's how I remembered it. But Corinth is on this isthmus, and uh, it was an ideal shipping hub where it was located from both the north and the south. The emperor Nero tried to cut a canal across that land, uh, in that, that isthmus in Corinth, and today there is one. 
Here's kind of a satellite view of it. But he couldn't do it because the technology wasn't available to do it in that day. And so up until that point, many believe probably starting around four centuries before Christ, uh, ships would sail into one port on one side or the other of the Isthmus of Corinth, and uh, they would get out and they'd take their ship, they'd pay a fee, and they'd take their ship and put it up on wooden platforms on top of either logs or big columns, and they would roll it the four miles across land to the other port. You thought your job was tough, right? Imagine doing that. Uh, here's actually a photo of the Corinthian, they called it the Dialkas, I think I'm saying that right. But it was this limestone pathway where they would just take ships across to the other side. Well, um, some say it would take anywhere from a half day to a few days to transfer a ship this way, depending on its size and the size of the crew. But this brought immense wealth to Corinth. Because, uh, by the way, today there's a canal there, so if you would go on a cruise in that area, uh, you might get towed through that canal in Cor- by Corinth. But the reason they would do this, they'd pay that fee and Corinth just grew in prosperity because it was a lot easier to go through here and safer than it was to sail all the way around and face just the crazy weather and shipwreck that awaited so many. It was worth the fee. And so Corinth grew in prosperity. It grew in influence as more and more people from all over the Roman Empire are passing through this area. And... uh, its city center was surrounded then by rows of shops and porches and roofed entrances. Here are some of the ruins of Corinth today. There's a whole lot more than that, but that's just one, uh, one shot of it. And uh, here's what it may have, that same area may have looked like in Paul's day. Uh, but there were multiple areas of commerce. There were uh, the worship of traditional Greco-Roman gods surrounded and supported everyday life in the city. Paul likely worked, as we saw last, last week, as a leather worker, a tent maker in Corinth. And uh, one of these spaces, like some of these colonnades were, were just shops. And so uh, maybe in downtown Corinth, that's part of where Paul had his shop with Priscilla and Aquila. You remember he met Priscilla and Aquila. They had lived in Rome, but Claudius, the Roman emperor, said kicked all the Jews out of Rome because of some of the uprisings and arguments with Christianity and he didn't want to deal with it. So they end up in Corinth probably a little bit before Paul does and Paul shows up and then he starts working alongside them and they become friends and they both believe the gospel and both a good business and ministry partnership forms between them. Well, um, Corinth also had a a meat market uh, in the northeast quarter of this downtown area. So when Paul talks to, and it, there's the Temple of Apollos when he talks about you know, meat being sacrificed to idols later in the book and your conscience. He's probably got some of those things in mind even as he writes it, and so would the people who are reading it. And his ministry in Corinth, Paul's, when he was there, uh, caused all kinds of uh, opposition from the Jewish community. You can read about it or go back and watch last week's message from Acts chapter 18. And uh, they just saw Paul as a competitor for the support of Gentiles who were sympathetic to the Jewish religion. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. And in Acts 18, verses seven and eight, we, we see that Paul even drew away the leader of the synagogue, a guy by the name of Crispus, and then later another leader, Sosthenes, and they became followers of Christ. And so uh, the Jewish community just raises up against Paul. 
They drag him before the court, put him on trial, uh, where he's acquitted, and he ends up staying in Corinth for 18 months. Well, after that time's up, uh, we'll see this in a few weeks when we get back into the book of Acts, Paul leaves Corinth and he's heading back to Syria, back to the church in Antioch. And on route, he goes through the city of Ephesus where he ends up coming back, another major city, and he stays in Ephesus eventually for three years. But it's from Ephesus then that he writes this letter back to the church in Corinth a few years after he had left. But the church in, in Corinth, Corinth was a, a decadent city. It was a wealthy city. Um, there was all kinds of immorality in the culture. As their wealth increased, so did their sense of self-sufficiency and thus their godlessness. And they're pursuing hope in false gods. Does any of that sound familiar? It's a little bit like our own culture, isn't it? Well, um, Paul, as he speaks to them, is, uh, and writes to them, I should say, is writing to them about the sanity of the church in Corinth because they were a church gone wild. I mean, they were just doing crazy, crazy things, becoming like the crazy world around them. And so verse 10 of chapter one, if you still got 1 Corinthians open, verse 10 is kind of the, really the key verse of the whole letter. And it tells us exactly why Paul's writing. He writes, he says, I appeal to you brothers, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I appeal that all of you agree. This is the start of the bad news. That there'd be no divisions among you, but that you'd be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's a quarreling among you, my brothers. See, there was divisions in the church. There was chaos in the church. When Paul said there needs to be unity and order. And, and I would say that um, these divisions and quarreling, it, in a church, it's both the root and the fruit of all kinds of sin. <laughs> Divisions and quarreling in a church can be the root of sin because it leads to more sin. You know, we get angry with one another, we slander one another, we argue with one another, and then it just causes us to amp that up and more sin increases. It can also be, I believe, the fruit of sin in our own lives where if we're not following Jesus and there's not a growing sense of uh, his, his Christ-likeness happening in us by the power of the Spirit, then rather than rely on the Spirit in the way we interact with one another, we just resort to our flesh. And so that division becomes the result of other sin in our life. It's the root and the fruit oftentimes of sin when there's a lot of division and disunity in a church. But over and over in his letters, whenever Paul writes a letter, so often he's concerned about this issue of unity because one, for the good of the people in the churches, right? But also for the good of the world. Uh, for example, in Ephesians, he encourages them to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To the church in Philippi, he says, hey, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Then to the churches uh, and the church in Colossae. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He's going to come back to that in his letter to the Corinthians as well. To the Romans, he says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He's, he's wanting us to pursue unity, isn't he? You know, by God's grace in our church for a number of years now, there has been a good deal of unity. And praise the Lord for that. Amen? Because there's also been seasons in our church, some of you have been around long enough, where there's not been unity, and there's been division, and there's been chaos. And we go through seasons. Every church kind of goes through seasons like that, don't they? But by God's grace, Paul is kind of giving us a remedy. He says, pursue unity. But he talks about their divisions there in chapter one uh, between him and Apollo and the different leaders. And then he talks more about it uh, in chapter three. He addresses their disorder and their division and chaos. He says, but I, brothers, I couldn't even address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh as infants in Christ. He's like, y'all are fighting so much. You're sinning so much. You're just a bunch of babies. <laughs> That's what he says. He just calls them a bunch of babies, doesn't he? You're infants. I can't even talk to you like a spiritual person. It's been, what, four years since you trusted Christ? Three years? And you haven't changed? You're not acting like a spiritual person. I, I can't talk to you that way. I gotta talk to you like a little baby. And he calls them babies. And then he goes on and uh, he talks about one of the issues that, that points to their infancy. He says, for one of you says, I follow Paul. This is verse four of chapter three. And another says, well, I follow Apollos. He says, when you do that, aren't you just being human and living in your flesh and not living as a spiritual person? It's like, well, it's like this camp, I really like this leader in the church. This camp, I really like this guy. We really like this one. And then they fight about it rather than just bless God for who's there. And Paul goes on and he says, what is then Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed. We're servants of the Lord. He goes, I planted, Apollo water, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. In other words, it's all about Jesus. And I made the comment in the first service that that's a really good verse as a pastor for me to memorize. The one who plants, the one who waters, what's Paul say? What's God's word say? Uh, Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. (laughs) God gave me the grace to lead in our church, but in the end, I'm, I'm nothing. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? God is the one who gives the growth. And if we had have that mindset, then that fosters unity. Well, um, additionally, 1 Corinthians clearly shows that some of the philosophies of the Greek and Roman world were really tainting the way that they saw their faith. Paul was quick to note that uh, wisdom is from the spirit and that the very best of human philosophy is actually just foolishness. The Spirit's wisdom versus human foolishness. Um, Let's just look at some of this, and we could go into this deeper, but uh, we'll go quick for this morning. Uh, He writes, uh, 
here he says, for the word, this is still chapter one, for the word, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, meaning those who don't believe. It's folly to them. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy, he quotes from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where's the, uh, the TikTok influencer? Where is the, the smart politician? Where is the wise talking head on the news of this age that knows how everything should work? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through its wisdom. Therefore, it pleased God in, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul's saying that oftentimes when, when we explain the gospel to somebody, especially in our culture, which is very much like Corinth, it just sounds like foolishness to people who don't want to hear it. Oh, those Christians, man, they are weird. They are so weird. It just sounds like foolishness. Do you ever, do you ever share your faith and you just feel like, boy, this just seems kind of foolish. There's no way they are listening to me. You know what? If you feel that way, you're probably on the right track because that's what God's word says is that God uses the foolishness of what we preach as power to save those who are lost. So keep going. Don't quit. If you don't feel stupid, you're not doing it right. <laughs> keep sharing the gospel. See, and he goes on talking about some of that, why it appears foolish to them. For Jews demand signs. See, they thought that their Messiah was gonna be strong and powerful and set up his throne as the king. And by the way, they're right about that. They were just wrong on the timing because Jesus is strong and powerful and he is gonna set up his dominion as king. And the Greeks, the, the people in Corinth, the Gentiles there, they, they sought wisdom. They just, they love to hear good thought. They love to hear new ideas. They, they love to think how smart they were. And Paul says, but we preach Christ, crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because they thought he'd be powerful and it's just folly to the Gentiles. They don't get it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ the is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul's saying that the wisdom comes from Christ and from the Spirit. And the best of human wisdom, the best of all the things in this world is just ultimately foolishness compared to him. For the foolishness of God, I think if, uh, if you got your Bible, if you wanted to, you could probably write like little quotes around foolishness. I think Paul's kind of being ironic here. The foolishness of God, what they discern as foolishness is actually wiser than men. And the weakness of God, that Jesus died, is actually stronger than men because in his death, what's he do? He deals with our sin. Well, um, he goes on in, in chapter two. Let's keep reading a little further. He goes, and when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That was just kind of what they liked in their culture, right? I didn't come to you in that way. For I decided to know nothing 
among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But then Paul goes on and goes, but don't be deceived. This isn't foolishness. We do impart wisdom to you. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. All the best wisdom, all the best philosophers, all the whoever and whatever, it's doomed to pass away, but the word of God will stand forever, right? But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. See, the the problem was that in, in pursuing all this wisdom and pursuing all this decadence and sin, they weren't growing as a church. They were fighting and they were sinning and they were sinning and they were fighting. They were babies who needed to grow up. That's who they were. And this wouldn't happen from human philosophies, but by the Spirit's wisdom and by the power of God. And for you and I to grow up, it's not gonna happen by coming up with good ideas on our own. It's gonna come from studying and hearing and obeying God's word, isn't it? Um, You know, uh, the Apostle Peter writes this. uh, In his uh, second letter, he says, like newborn infants long for, or his first letter, excuse me, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, God's word is milk. It is for infants, for those who are brand new in their faith, but there's also a lot of meat in here for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time. So, so read it, study it, pursue it, grow up in your faith. You know, he's writing this for that church's sanity and for the church's sanity as a whole, but he's also writing it for your sanity and for my sanity. Like if you w- want to stay sane, you better get in this word. You better hear it taught. You better obey it. Amen? It's our only hope because... It's our sanity in a world that's gone crazy. Like, I don't know, I don't think the world's that crazy. You haven't been paying any attention, have you? The world has gone mad, hasn't it? I mean, there's all kinds of things. The things that were happening in Corinth are happening in our day. There was immorality and idolatry. We didn't have time to look through all of these this morning because really this letter, this first letter to the Corinthians could be a 20-week series probably of its own, preaching through it. But because the culture in Corinth was so similar in many ways to our own culture, it's a powerful book for us today. And so is Second Corinthians in teaching us how to live and addressing all the craziness in our culture. I mean, uh, we mentioned some of these already, but uh, you can just thumb through with me if you got your Bible. In chapter five, I mentioned this earlier, Paul addresses uh, just some rampant immorality. One particular situation, he says, 
It's actually reported that there is a sexual, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That's weird. But I think if Paul was here today, he'd look at our culture and he goes, there's some weird things going on. Like, uh, it's not too hard to figure out if somebody's a man or a woman. But why is everybody so confused? He goes on in chapter six and addresses just their grievances with one another. He says, for when one of you has a grievance against another, why does he... Why doesn't he dare to go to the law, uh, or excuse me, why does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Why, why are you going into court to sue your brother and sister instead of just getting together and trying to deal with it first before you ever have to get to that point? And he talks about different, all these different things. He, he talks then about lawsuits and loyalties I have written there. Uh, some, there was issues, if you turn back to chapter one, of, uh, we mentioned you know, some in chapter three, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And uh, there was issues with loyalties of being loyal to themselves, but not to one another. And in matters of conscience, they would just do whatever they wanted, no matter how it affected everybody else, because that's what they wanted. That's what I want to do. But Paul says, no, you can't, don't do that. He talks about freedom and our responsibility to one another in that. So, so what's the remedy to all of this? What's the remedy to their sin? What's the remedy to their craziness? What's their sanity? I think Paul says it's the gospel. And uh, your sanity and my sanity in a world gone crazy is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, um, Pastor Dave mentioned it earlier, uh, just about having gospel conversations. It's our heart, right? We, we want more and more people. We've said by the year 2030, we want to engage in, by God's grace, 10,000 gospel conversations with people. People we know, people we love, our neighbors, making Jesus the hero of the story. And you can text in and let us know how those are going. There's an app coming uh, sometime later this year that you can use to keep track of that and kind of keep a prayer journal through your conversations of people that you love, that you want to grow up and know the truth of the gospel. Um, but we also want to equip you with ways to share that. And the thing is, in a world that has gone crazy, there's a lot of brokenness, isn't there? And so it opens the door for a lot of good conversations. Um, so I wanna give you one more tool that maybe would either help you have those conversations or that maybe if you're confused about all this and what I keep talking about when I say the gospel, that maybe it'd help you understand it. I mentioned we live in a crazy broken world surrounded by brokenness, broken lives and relationships and broken systems. And it's seen in suffering, it's seen in violence and war and poverty and pain and death and sickness around us. 
And brokenness is no good, but the good thing about brokenness is it actually causes you to search for the way life should work. It actually pushes you to search for the way that life should work. Uh, See, in contrast to this brokenness, we also see beauty, don't we? We see purpose and we see the evidence of God's design all around us. And the Bible tells us that God originally planned the world to work perfectly. It was his design. He designed everything good. And so if you're talking about this with somebody, you could just draw a circle and write God's design. See, your brokenness and my brokenness points to the fact that something's wrong and that there was a time where something was right. And that's God's design. The Bible tells us that God originally planned a world that worked perfectly, where everything and everyone fit together in harmony. He made each of us with a purpose to worship him and to walk with him. The Bible says God saw everything that he made And do you remember what he said about it? He said it was good. He said it was good. That even the heavens declare the glory of God. But the problem is, uh, our brokenness is when we try to live outside of God's design. Our sin leads to a place of brokenness. And we see this all around in our own lives as well, right? when we realize that life isn't working and we feel broken, what do we do? We start to look for a way out. And we try this relationship. We try uh, this uh, career path. We try this addiction. We try this fill in the blank. And we try all these ways to get out of our brokenness. But do you know what happens? We end up staying more broken. Because again, we're moving away from God's design. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, uh, see our brokenness? Uh, People exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served something created instead of the creator. Uh, The writer of Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it's the way to death. And when we search for all these things, we just end up on the way to more death and more brokenness. But there's also some good news. And that good news, that's the word gospel, that's what the gospel means. Gospel means good news. That there is actually a way to be restored to God's design. And that way is the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ put on flesh, became human, and lived life perfectly according and within God's design. He never sinned. And because he did that though, he, he, he still went and he paid and experienced the brokenness of our sin on our behalf so that we could be restored back to God's design. He dealt with our sin on the cross. 
that's really good news, but just hearing that good news isn't enough. There's like, you've got to respond to it somehow. There's a response that's needed, and that response is to repent. Repent is, is just a kind of a churchy word. It seems like that's about the only place we hear it, right? But it just means to change your mind. It means to turn around. So when I'm seeking all these things that are leading me farther and farther from God's design, you, you know what the right response is when I hear the good news of the gospel? It's to go like this and go back the other way. To repent. To repent and to believe that Jesus is actually the way for things to be restored. Mark 1.15, the Bible says, repent and believe in the good news and the gospel. Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. You're not gonna find it in your own brokenness. It's God's gift. It's not from work so that nobody can boast. Romans 10 says, if you would confess then with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the end result of your brokenness and your sin and saved back into, restored into right relationship with God. That's the good news of the gospel. And, and you just repent and believe. And when you do that, God begins restoring our relationship with him and we, as we pursue Christ, who we've said is Lord and is the ruler and is ultimate. And I, my life is recovered and when one day it's gonna be fully restored when Jesus returns. But in this life, I'm just pursuing him and instead of pursuing healing from my brokenness in all these crazy ways, I pursue it by returning to God whose design is good and perfect. Now, that whole thing, you could sit and draw that out, talk with somebody about those things. You could also, I found out uh, in our student ministry, they've been using this for a while, I learned after the first service. And there's an app you can go get uh, called Life on Mission that just walks you through those things. If you don't want to draw it, you can just kind of thumb through on your phone and talk with somebody about it. It's pretty sweet. And it gives you all the Bible verses I was just talking about and mentioned if you don't know them yourself. But this is an easy way to explain the gospel to somebody and encourage you to do that. When you face brokenness, when you're talking with your friends, with the people who are loved, and they just mention their brokenness, go, yeah, life is broken. It makes you think like there's something better, doesn't it? And then you can enter that conversation. And uh, encourage you, keep pursuing that. And, and by the way, if, if you're hearing some of that for the first time and you're like, you know what? Uh, I need to repent and return. It's really simple. All you need to do is just, uh, in prayer, you can talk to God and just say, God, I, I recognize that I've, been, I've sinned. I've strayed from your design. I, I've sought healing and, and hope and purpose and, and everything else, and it's not working. And so I repent. I turn back. I repent of my sin, and in Jesus, I turn to you because there is good news that you've fixed it. And I believe in you and I want to pursue you with my life. And that's just a simple way you can pray and begin that journey of restoration and recovery to God's design. See, that's what Paul says is the remedy 
to all of the sin and all of the craziness. It's their sanity in a world gone mad and in their church. And he talks about some of the outcomes of that then on that road of recovery and restoration. And he says, part of the ways of pursuing Christ is to serve, to use your gifts. Chapter 12, he talks about our our gifts being uh, given, uh, verse seven, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. In other words, you have some gifts, you have some abilities that God's given you. And the reason he's given you those is for the good of everybody. So use them towards that end, serve one another. Give of yourself and of your resources. And love one another. Love one another. Really, that's the the greatest outworking of this in our lives is our love for one another. In fact, chapter 13, uh, as we wrap up here, holds one of the the most uh, often quoted passages in all of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maybe it was read, if you're married, maybe it was read at your wedding. The thing is, it wasn't written for a wedding. It was written as a a part of a letter to a bunch of Christians who had gone crazy. Here's what Paul writes. He goes, hey, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have uh, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. If I give away everything that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, part of the, by the way, part of the philosophy of that day was this dualism between spirituality and the physical world. And so it led to either indulgence on the physical side of just doing whatever I want, whenever I want, because it really doesn't matter in the end because I'm forgiven and it's all gonna be okay. Or a total asceticism saying, I'm gonna deny myself in just radical, crazy ways (coughs) to heighten that spiritual side. And so Paul's kind of addressing that. If I give away everything and I deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, what's the point? I gain nothing. Then he describes love. It's patient. As you pursue Christ, it's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not... uh, irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Remember, he's writing to a church that's divided, saying, love one another. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial passes away. Do you remember what Paul called them back in chapter one? He basically said, you're a bunch of babies, or chapter three. Well, uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. He wants him to grow. For now, uh, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He's writing to a church divided. He's saying, friends, turn from your sin, come to your senses, pursue Christ, pursue loving one another in unity because it's all about Jesus. When he gets to chapter 15, chapter 16 is just some closing comments, but 15 is really kind of his conclusion then. And, and here's what he says, saying it's all about Jesus. He goes, now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you're being saved. This is so encouraging to me. This and also Paul's opening to this letter because this church, they had gone crazy. But in the very beginning, what does Paul call them? Saints, those who are saved. What's he say here at the end? You're being saved. Like if, if, even if you've sinned in the most horrendous ways, God is not done with you. There's a way to turn back and be restored and pursue Christ. He's still at work in your life. Don't give up. Hold fast to the word that you're hearing. He's saying, don't believe in vain. Don't just give it lip service, but actually believe it and live it out. For I delivered to you, here it is, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And what Paul's saying here, friends, is that the church's sanity in a world gone crazy is the gospel. That issue of first importance of Christ. And it's not only the church's sanity, it's your sanity and it's my sanity. Let me pray.